This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Christmas edition of The Conspiracy Show. What a privilege and an honor and a delight uh, to be sharing some time with you tonight, December the 26th, the day after Christmas. And that's because uh, Christmas is, of course, a time when we traditionally hunker down with friends, family, loved ones. And that's what I'm doing tonight, spending this time with you because you are my radio family and you are very important to me. So it's it's wonderful to be, to be with you and uh, I thank you for welcoming me into your home, not only tonight, but uh, throughout the year and throughout the years. So I hope you'll... Uh, spend the next two hours with me as we celebrate uh, Christmas, the uh, the second most holy day on the Christian calendar, but very important nonetheless. In the, f- the, uh, the second hour of the show, I'm going to uh, dip into the archives. We'll go into the Wayback Machine, if you will, to uh, an interview I did almost one year ago, with Courtney Roberts. She is the author of The Star of the Magi, The Mystery That Heralded the Coming of Christ. And uh, she's a writer, researcher, who's looked into one of the most popular and puzzling mysteries of the Bible, The Star of Bethlehem, and its inclusion at the very beginning of the very first gospel raises so many, well, awkward questions for Orthodox Christianity that uh, one has to really wonder how it ever made it into the canonical uh, literature in the first place. Why would the authors and editors 
of the Christian Gospels, choose Zoroastrian Magi and astrology to herald the coming of Jesus Christ. Did the Magi have some special significance then that we've since lost? After all, the New Testament narrative opens with them, and you have to ask yourself, who were the Magi? Did their astrological beliefs really head them in, in, in Jesus' direction? And so now for the first time in the Star of the Magi, Courtney Roberts, who has a solid background in the history of astrology and ancient religion, examines the Star of Bethlehem. So we can look forward to that in hour two of the program. Well, what better time than Christmas to delve into the lives of the saints? And who better uh, to help us in this regard than a best-selling authority on spirituality, metaphysics, visionary experiences, and the paranormal, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show, and we're delighted to have her here on the uh, Christmas edition of The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Rosemary, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. I think the last time you and I uh, spoke, we were uh, enjoying some wild boar down in the village in New York City. That was a fantastic day to do the filming for the TV show and top it off with a wonderful Italian dinner. Indeed. Indeed. And, uh, and the, coincidentally, the bottle of wine they brought to the table was uh, Illuminati. Do you remember that? Goodness. Well, how perfect can you get? Indeed. All right. This is a, quite an impressive work, uh, uh, Rosemary, the Encyclopedia of Saints. It's a beautiful book. And um, how did you begin to tackle some, something like this? I mean, there are just so many saints uh, that are uh, venerated and... and uh, all over the world, and how do you decide who gets in and who doesn't? It's sometimes a hard call. There are obvious saints, of course, uh, that must be included. They had very important roles in the church, or they had tremendous popularity cults. Uh, but there are literally thousands of saints. In fact, when you consider all of the blessings and the martyrs, you're dealing with tens of thousands of individuals throughout history. Uh, and after I uh, put together the list of, of the must, the church fathers, the canonized, you know, all the canonized saints, uh, the ones that have, um, you know, popular patronages and, and things like that, the stigmatists, uh, what I was really interested in were some of the, um, the mystical things, uh, the spiritual visions and experiences the life-changing events that propelled ordinary people onto these extraordinary paths. And uh, for those criteria, that took me into some of the, um, the saints who are lesser known from a popularity standpoint, but yet had amazing visionary experiences. So I included a lot of those, too. Uh, and it, it um, was one of the most interesting pieces of, of work I've done in my career. You know, I'm approaching about 50 books now uh, on a variety of topics, and uh, as a lot of my readers know, I'm fascinated by everything paranormal, spiritual, and mystical. But the Saints Project 
was very special to me. I'm not Catholic, and many people think that I must be Catholic to be writing about saints. But um, the, the saints really apply to people of all faiths uh, for their dedication to, uh, to the divine and to high spiritual truth. And for several years before I started this book, uh, I just had inner promptings uh, uh, about looking uh, into the lives of the saints and their works. And uh, I just felt very guided to do this book. And uh, I actually had to do some convincing with my publisher uh, to undertake it because it, it was obviously not one of my more traditional paranormal works. Uh, it's more of a religious work. And uh, I presented a case for the roles of the saints, not just in their spiritual path, but how they influence um, literally the course of Western history through their, uh, their establishment of schools and education, their missionary work, their uh, hospital and healthcare work, and also the writings that they did that influenced the development of the theology of the church. So uh, it, it just, for me, it was an amazing spiritual journey to delve into these extraordinary lives. I'm fascinated by your comments that you felt an inner prompting, uh, and that, that led you to write this book. Is there or was there a, a patron saint in, in your life that influenced you that perhaps was responsible for that inner prompting, you suspect? I, I can't point to a specific saint, but um, in, as part of my own education and things, and, and my wide reading and... and uh, seminars and, and courses that uh, I've taken over the years, um, I became acquainted early on with some of the works of the, the noted female saints. And Hildegard of Bingen was one of them, Julian of Norwich was another, uh, and um, their mystical lives fascinated me, the experiences that they had, and also the fact that they were extraordinary women at a time when... Uh, women really weren't given much importance. They were, uh, you know, medieval, and uh, yet they stood out. They they gained prominence, and they even influenced um, many of the leaders of their time. So um, that was part of my early path toward uh, uh, my my interest in saints, and um, I got also got interested in in some of the. Fathers, the Greek Orthodox saints, uh, they, they have a very unique body of mystical work that uh, I found very appealing, uh, that seemed to strike close to the heart. And uh, so all of those were kind of paths that led me into um, an interest in uh, the, the communion of saints, as, as it would be called in, in the Catholic tradition. Uh, these these individuals who achieved a, a spiritual status um, that makes millions of people look to them for uh, intermediary help in the affairs of their lives. You know, that, that's the power that saints acquire, uh, that they have the, the ability to intercede, almost like angels, uh, on our behalf. Uh, people pray to saints. Um, for healing, for assistance, for, for miracles, and they have this, um, this incredible ability to, 
uh, intercede for us on our behalf. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, the author of The Encyclopedia of Saints. Rosemary, whether we're talking about the visions of, of Hildegard of Bingen or the, the, uh, the ability of uh, Francis Xavier, for example, to bilocate, whether we're talking about one of your favorite saints, John uh, Climacus, uh, who, if I remember correctly, was one of his better-known feats was his ability to, well, he basically he didn't sleep for like 20 years, as, as, as I understand it. How do you think they these saints were able to do the things that they did? So many of them were literally like Eastern yogis, and they did practice um, methods of prayer and meditation that uh, would be like yogic practices. Uh, they just weren't uh, called yoga. Uh, but especially in the Eastern Orthodox uh, community, there were uh, methods of breathing that would take them into uh, altered states of consciousness. And uh, one in particular was to slow the breathing down, uh, almost to the point of passing out. And um, it, it was quite dangerous to the health. And in fact, many things uh, in both the, the Latin uh, community and the uh, Orthodox community had impaired health throughout their lives from the mortifications that uh, they practiced. They would go without eating for long periods of time for fasting. They would uh, deprive themselves of sleep. Uh, they would mortify the flesh. Uh, they would stress the body out with things like uh, uh, diets of uh, that had a lot of vinegar in them and, and uh, salt and uh, you know, literally to purify to purify the body, and then they would do these breathing techniques and go into long periods of prayer and meditation. Uh, and they had incredible experiences, but I think were quite genuine. Some of the stories around them, I think, have been embellished over time uh, as part of the glorification of their their status. But the bottom line is, they did have trance experiences that took them into the presence divine. And uh, when, when these things happen, uh, literally things can change the body. Um, and uh, this has been documented in the Eastern mystical literature as, as well. Uh, and I think that happened to the saints. Uh, some of the stories about the prolonged periods of, of sleep deprivation and, and not eating, um, we don't really know how much they might have been exaggerated uh, just to, you know, enhance the saintly status, but they did do things to their bodies that uh, transcended the ability of most ordinary people, and that was part of their extraordinary life. All right, Rosemary, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Let's talk about St. Francis of Assisi when we return and his life before conversion, which is most fascinating. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, The Encyclopedia of Saints, which is published by Checkmark Books, an imprint of Facts on File. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us. A little later in the show, we'll unravel the mysteries of the Star of Bethlehem. Right now, we're discussing the lives of saints. 
St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, talk to me about his life before his conversion, because I find this fascinating, Rosemary. And it's, uh, his life is very well documented, too. He uh, uh, was born uh, probably in the late 12th century, around 1181. Uh, and a lot has been written about him, uh, so we have good historical record. But he did have a, a very interesting life. He, he was actually born into money. His uh, father was a merchant and was quite well off. And uh, Francis, if he'd been like most young men of his day, um, could have had a very fine, comfortable life uh, with his inheritance and if he had followed his father's footsteps. But, uh, and in fact, early in his life, he did that. He was carefree and kind of a spendthrift as well. Uh, but then he had some experiences that, that transformed him. Uh, and one of them was uh, when a, a call was issued for the Fourth Crusade, he decided to be a knight. And a, a lot of uh, noble and wealthy young men would do that as, as part of their, um, their obligation to, you know, to serve and valor. But um, uh, he, he, he got himself, you know, outfitted in the finest armor he could afford it, and uh, he rode off. But he was only a day into his journey uh, when he met a, a very poor man, and he was seized with uh, the urge to trade his armor, his finery, for the man's rags, which he did. Uh, and then he uh, shortly after that, became ill, and he had a visionary dream. Um, dream. Visionary dreams are very important in a lot of same experiences. And uh, uh, a voice told him, uh, which he took to be the voice of God, that his life was on the wrong track, and he should serve the master and not the man, and go home. And this was a tremendous turning point in his life, where... Uh, he turned away from the, the life of the material and began to seek the spiritual. And uh, his father just didn't quite know what to do with him because he, he went off to a cave and prayed for a long period of time. Uh, and uh, then he pretty much denied his entire family heritage. He took off all of his clothes and donned rags. Uh, he went around preaching in public and praying. Um, people assumed him to be insane, that something had gone wrong with him, and he was even stoned sometimes, uh, because uh, people just didn't know, quite know how to take him, that change, this market change in personality. Uh, so his father uh, renounced him and, and cut him off, uh, and Francis then began his, uh, his spiritual life. Uh, his trademark was this, um, this sack-like tunic uh, of brown wool that he took chalk and put a white cross on, and that became his trademark of his order. And he soon attracted a, a band of followers, and uh, they went around preaching and helping the poor and the sick, uh, and following lives of you know, great austerity and, and deprivation. Uh, and uh, then he acquired, at age 42, he, he acquired the stigmata, uh, and uh, the bleeding wound stayed with him for the rest of his life. Uh, but um, uh, like a, there were other people uh, in, in the saint uh, 
the communion of saints who who had these transformative experiences that led them away from lives of leisure into these extraordinary spiritual lives, and, uh, and Francis was one of them. If some of these, many of these saints were here today, and, and we, we saw them uh, behave in, in the manner that they did back then, they, many of them probably would have been locked up in mental institutions. Well, it's true. I think uh, we would medicate them today. Uh, and in fact, uh, when, when people have visionary experiences and hear voices, especially if it's a frequent kind of experience, we, uh, we wonder if they're schizophrenic or bipolar uh, or mentally unstable and uh, want, want to run people off to uh, psychiatrists and have them diagnosed and medicated. Uh, would Francis of Assisi, uh, if, if he existed in modern times and was put on Prozac or something like that, uh, would he have uh, turned into the, the individual that he did? Probably not, because um, one hallmark of many of these things uh, are these experiences that put them on the fringe of society, physically, mentally, spiritually. Uh, they they run the risk of being outcast uh, and um, live and you know they they really remove themselves from mainstream society. It's something to think about the next time, uh, perhaps we uh, uh, step over some uh, poor soul with you know long matted hair and tattered clothes, uh, you know sitting on the sidewalk. Uh, seemingly out of out of his mind. Who knows? I mean, we could be we could be walking amongst saints without even knowing it. Uh, and it's quite possible. Uh, some of these figures really didn't become revered until long after their death. Uh, there were some who were quite popular uh, during their their lives, and in fact, uh, in the early days of Christianity. One became a saint simply by popular acclaim, and this was the case with a lot of martyrs. Um, but um, other saints were not uh, given their status of blessed or, or saint, sainthood, canonization, uh, sometimes until centuries after their death. Uh, and some of them have, had labored uh, very much in obscurity during their lives. Uh, so I, I think individuals really who followed this path, they had to be quite dedicated. They had experiences that uh, convinced them that they had to turn their entire lives over to the pursuit of the divine, to dedication to God, uh, to Jesus and the Virgin Mary, uh, and to, to glorify that. And uh, a lot of it was through uh, deliberately bringing themselves into a lot of pain and suffering. And some of that was, was part of their purification in, in order to uh, achieve a higher spiritual status. When we come back, sorry, Rosemary, we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, I'd like to discuss uh, briefly um, some of the miraculous uh, attributes of St. Francis Xavier, including his ability allegedly to bilocate and also, the raising of a dead man whose entombed body was said to be putrefied. Back 
with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of The Encyclopedia of Saints, here on the Christmas edition of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. St. Francis Xavier, uh, Rosemary, a very popular saint, uh, but his ability to bilocate, and, and it was done so frequently, it almost became commonplace. I think he really did have that ability. He was uh, quite a remarkable man, and he lived in the 16th century. He was a, a Jesuit, uh, and in fact, he was uh, the first Jesu- Jesuit uh, missionary. Um, and there were uh, some saints who acquired uh, a lot of what today we would call supernatural powers. And again, if I may compare them to Eastern uh, yoga traditions, the same things are found there, that uh, when you achieve a certain state of uh, enlightenment, uh, physical things happen uh, that uh, defy ordinary explanation. One of them is by location. Uh, Francis Xavier uh, was one of these saints who could be in two places at once. He would be seen in one location, and uh, reported uh, at another location. And uh, also Padre Pio had that ability as well. He was quite well known for it. This was part of his service, that uh, he would, it's like you're, you're called out uh, to help in so many places that uh, you literally need to be in more place, uh, more than one place at the same time. And I do think that this is a, a real ability um, there's um, uh, another body, so to speak, that, uh, that, that separates from the physical body and can go out and interact, communicate, do things, uh, and seem solid to other people. Uh, how it's done, um, don't really know the exact process, but it, uh, it requires this enlightened state of consciousness. What about his reported to have um, raised someone from the dead who was entombed and said to be in a putrefied state, so obviously had been dead for some time. Uh, there is that story about him, and in fact, uh, there are a number of saints who supposedly raised people from the dead. And personally, I haven't known how to evaluate these stories because they would be considered to be medically impossible today. Uh, but um, uh, the, the stories exist, and uh, people have uh, testified to them. Um, this is following the example of, of Jesus, of course, and that's one of the things that uh, the saints strive to do, is to do the same acts uh, that he did during his life. Uh, so, uh, you know, Richard, I just don't know uh, what to think about the, the raising of the dead. Um, if we accept the story, um, then, you know, he actually accomplished that. Um, what we don't know, especially since these things happened so many centuries ago, or what the actual conditions were. Supposedly, this person had actually started to decompose. Um, but uh, were there cases where people were in, like, deep comas and thought to be dead and then, uh, and then healed? Uh, we simply don't know. Were they 
were there witnesses? Uh, were they were these incidents widely reported? Uh, it's difficult to know sometimes from the accounts, but um, yes, the saints uh, usually had a you know groups of followers with them uh, who would testify also to the miracles. Uh, he also uh, was a saint who had the ability to uh, to control weather. This was attributed to other saints as well, uh, and. Uh, a remarkable ability to, to heal the sick by touch. Rosemary, it wouldn't be a Christmas, of course, if we uh, didn't talk about uh, a very important saint, the Bishop of Mira, also known as Saint Nicholas, uh, who has become popularized, of course, as Santa Claus. Tell me about the life of Saint Nicholas. Well, he lived in the fourth century, uh, and actually there's not a whole lot that's known about the details of his life. He was a bishop. Uh, most of what we know comes from legends that, that uh, grew up around him. Uh, it seems that um, he did spend some time in jail during uh, persecutions of Christians. Uh, Christians. Uh, he was uh, not martyred, uh, but was released from jail. He was especially known for his generosity and his gift, gift giving, and that may be one of the factors that uh, made him the, uh, the prototype of, of Santa Claus. Um, but another thing that's amazing about him has to do with his relics, and I became fascinated by the power of relics during my research. And uh, a relic is um, like a piece of a saint, a bone or an organ. Uh, a body part that um, uh, might remain incorrupt uh, after after death, or if the bones are dug up, the bones um, belonging to the saint um, are associated with miraculous power and uh, access to to the divine. Uh, and Nicholas's bones are said to exude an oil, a mysterious oil uh, that. Uh, drip out of the bones, and uh, centuries ago it would be collected. Uh, and this oil was examined, and nobody quite knew exactly what the substance was, but it was considered to be uh, a, a sign of the miraculous that um, you know he was indeed a saint. Um, you know, another saint that has um, serious. Uh, regeneration like that is Januarius who collected blood is uh, supposed to reliquify at certain times of the year. Uh, but at any rate, St. Nicholas was uh, a gift giver and, and uh, it said that um, he saved uh, women from prostitution by uh, throwing uh, bags of gold at them uh, so they would not be reduced to those circumstances. Uh, today we still honor him uh, the figure of Santa Claus. Well, that's what we tell our, our four-year-old uh, twin boys. Is, uh, we, we don't uh, talk about uh, Santa Claus. We talk about uh, St. Nicholas. Um, so theoretically, uh, or not theoretically, so we uh, actually, factually, we can't be accused of lying to our children because St. Nicholas is real. <laughs> that's, how we, 
we skirt around that one. Uh, you mentioned uh, relics, and I know that uh, a few years ago you were in Italy, and you had the opportunity to visit many of these uh, relics and uh, uh, the incorrupt saint shrines. I'm I'm fascinated by these uh, these saints that have died uh, or have been dead for centuries, and their body, uh, their bodies on display in some sort of a glass uh, casing or, or or so forth, and and are virtually incorrupt. Their skin still supple, as if they had just passed away hours ago. It truly is amazing, Richard. I spent five weeks in Italy a few years ago and traveled extensively around the country. And one of my missions was to uh, witness relics, especially the incorrupt bodies. And uh, I had the, the honor of uh, seeing the, the, what I call the three Catherines, Catherine of Siena, Catherine of Genoa, and Catherine of Bologna. Uh, Catherine of Bologna is especially astonishing. Uh, she lived in the 15th century. She had uh, a great deal of visionary experiences and uh, was buried without a coffin. Uh, and um, many times when um, saintly people died, their bodies were dug up after a certain period of time to examine them for incorruption because it was believed because of their um, their heightened spirituality that uh, the body would not decompose. And uh, she was dug up 18 days later uh, with a sweet scent filling her grave instead of the stench of decomposition. Her body was not decomposing. Um, and here it was with no coffin. Uh, and um, it it even the body even bled uh, when uh, a little bit of skin was taken off. So um, she was reburied and then exhumed again, uh, and was still incorrupt. And so her body was taken into uh, a chapel and, and sat in an upright position. And uh, she's still in this little chapel in Bologna, dressed in her nun's habit. Uh, she's encased in a reliquary now, and her skin has really turned ebony black because uh, of exposure to oil lamps over the centuries. And her hands have, have been covered with a little bit of wax, but so she's sitting there in this reliquary with her habit on, and her eyes are cast down, and she's got a prayer book open in her lap, and she's holding her rosary. And uh, this is, uh, it's not a secret location, but it's not well known. It's not in the tourist literature. You have to ask people in Bologna, uh, the chapel, to find her in. And even when you go into that chapel, she's still in a little tiny room, and it's not marked. And only about 10 people can sit in it at a time, but people go in there and pray. She looks so lifelike, Richard, that it's, you expect her to lift her eyes and look at you at any second. Um, and she has been like that for uh, over 500 years. My word. Any miracles attributed to uh, people who, who, who visit her incorrupt body? Um, most of the miracles are associated with healing. People usually pray for healing. And in centuries past, uh, before she was encased in a reliquary, uh, she was out in the open, and, and pilgrims could go and touch her feet. Uh, and 
miracles of healing were attributed to her. I also saw the, um, the interrupt body of Catherine of Genoa, uh, who was born in the mid-15th century. She died in the early 16th century. And she's laid out in a reliquary uh, in a prone position. Uh, and some of her body is covered, but her hands are exposed and, and her feet and, and her head and face. Um, and again, looking very lifelike. Uh, now, she had um, a very unusual life, and she would have been considered uh, probably mentally unstable by modern standards. Um, she had visionary experiences from a young age and uh, dedicated herself to helping the poor. And like a lot of saints, deprived herself, did self-mortification, uh, subjected herself to very austere conditions. But one of the things that she would do uh, would totally disgust people today. She would go into the dirtiest, poorest sections of town to help people. And some of these people were ill with, with the plague. Uh, and she would clean their filth. And sometimes she would put it in her mouth. Oh, my Lord. This was her way of, uh, as she put it, uh, she wanted to overcome disgust. This was a very important spiritual trial for her. She would take their dirty clothing home that was filthy with excrement and dirt uh, and even life and uh, clean it and, and return it to people. Um, and amazingly, she was never afflicted herself. Um, and uh, here she is, you know, being corrupt now uh, for centuries in uh, Church of Genoa. Catherine of Siena, uh, her, her relic is a little macabre by modern standards. Now, she was an amazing woman who lived in the 14th century. She's a doctor of the church. One of the few women to be exalted at that status. She actually advised two popes on political things and was a peace ambassador. She had many mystical visions and had a mystical marriage with Jesus. And her surviving relic today is her head. Um, her head uh, became severed from her body uh, at one point and um, the head is in this little reliquary uh, in a chapel in Siena. And um, she, her head is, is wearing uh, her habit. It's very dry and, and desiccated, but it's, uh, it's still preserved. There was also the um, petrified tongue uh, that, that you saw of, uh, was it Anthony of Padua? Uh, yes, and that amazed me too. Uh, that these body parts, uh, I mean, some saints literally have been almost dismembered for their body parts and, and different things, the bones and organs and this and that, they're uh, sent off to, to different churches as um, uh, things to, to, for the faithful to uh, focus faith on. And uh, his tongue, Anthony's tongue, uh, is remained incorrupt he, along with some other body parts and it's preserved in a glass reliquary of liquid uh, in the church 
And that's all it is, is a tongue. Uh, and you get in a very long line uh, of, of pilgrims uh, to walk past this tongue. Uh, and um, then there, you know, are places to pray, and people from you know can pray for, for very short periods of time in front of the tongue. It's a way of connecting to this intermediary power of saying. That's what the relic does. The relic sort of connects you to your to the intermediary power of saying. Um, and I have some first class relics myself. I have a little collection. A first class relic is either a piece of a saint or their clothing or a piece of their coffin. And I have some tiny, tiny pieces of clothing, various things. I have a few coffin pieces. How do you go about um, uh, verifying those pieces? I, I mean, do you do you purchase them? I mean, how do you how do you uh, make sure that they're the real, genuine article? Well, you have to take uh, take the church's word for it, and uh, churches uh, are authorized to sell these relics. Uh, they can be purchased. Uh, they're encased, usually encased in uh, little piece of plastic or, or metal. And uh, they're very, very tiny, like a, a snippet of somebody's uh, clothing. Uh, and uh, sometimes they come with certificates of uh, authentication. But uh, it's more or less take their word for it that is that it is genuine um, and people like to have these they, they can be worn as uh, saint medallions they're encased in the, the little medallions sometimes and uh, so I have a little small collection of, of um, relics a couple of bone pieces uh, and uh, the clothing would be considered uh, a second class relic um, and the third-class relics are items that have touched these, uh, these other relics. Uh, and they're con still considered to be uh, a, a powerful, too. Have you experienced... And relics are very important, and, and people will make pilgrimages. Uh, uh, Therese of Lisieux, who was uh, interred in France, and I visited her chapel as well, where her wrist phone is on display. Uh, sometimes the relics go on tour, and uh, when Ter uh, Therese's uh, uh, wristbone came to America, uh, millions of people turned out for uh, the procession to see the wristbone paraded through the street. Have you experienced uh, any miracles or, or heard of any miracles uh, attributed to any of these relics? Well, uh, there are. Uh, documentations of miracles of healing. Um, sometimes when the relics are touched to people, um, then they have uh, miracles of healing. And uh, sometimes that's uh, included in the evidence for canonization. Uh, to, to be a blessed, there has to be uh, one demonstrated miracle that establishes uh, the uh, candidate's ability to, to intercede. Uh, for someone, and uh, for canonization, there have to be two miracles. And uh, you know, there have been cases where uh, people have had um, miraculous healings have been documented uh, because of some sort of um, uh, contact with the relic. 
All right, Rosemary, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk about one of your favorite saints, John of Clonacus, and uh, continue to delve into the lives of saints, all documented in Rosemary Ellen Guiley's Encyclopedia of Saints, as we discuss here on the Christmas edition of The Conspiracy Show on AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Rosemary, uh, John Climacus, why is he your favorite saint? Uh, it's because of one of his work, uh, his best-known work, uh, which is the Ladder of Divine Light. And um, actually, there's, there's not a whole lot known uh, about his life, uh, but this remarkable work that he produced, when I read it, it just had a very profound effect on me. Um, and he lived in the uh, late 6th to mid-7th century. He was an abbot uh, of Sinai, and he was a mystic. He, uh, you know, withdrew from the world uh, to, uh, to pray and uh, follow the spiritual path. Um, he did have some disciples. That um, this ladder of di- divine ascent, uh, and that's actually where he gets his name from. Uh, Climacus means ladder, so his name actually means John of the Ladder. But um, it's a, a work in 30 chapters, and uh, that's symbolic because um, Jesus was supposed to have been baptized at age 30 by John the Baptist. And the ladders are steps for the spiritual life. And uh, each step is oriented around a virtue or a passion. Uh, And he writes quite eloquently on um, the attainment of virtues and um, how one can um, become more spiritualized, how one can become more enlightened. And so the latter sort of take you up uh, literally to the heavenly heights, uh, and by contemplating each step, it's almost like a, a meditational experience. But if you take each step on this ladder and think about what he has to say and and uh, the content, uh, and use that as a way to uh, to connect to a new level of spiritual awareness, I found it just to be a very profound work. Did he not live in almost virtual isolation for 20 years? He did, and uh, that was very characteristic of a lot of the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, monks and saints. Um, It was the tradition to withdraw to uh, a remote area, a monastery, and uh, follow a very isolated life. now, we certainly have that tradition in the Latin uh, saints as well, but um, the, the, many of the Latin saints were more oriented toward missionary work, to, uh, to uh, going out into the community, uh, to preaching, to converting, to rallying the faithful, where uh, a lot of these Eastern Orthodox saints really withdrew from the world uh, to find their... Uh, their spiritual center. And it, uh, for me, 
uh, I could feel a great deal of difference in what I would call the spiritual vibration of the work that these things produce. Um, on both sides, uh, they're just very profound work, but because they, the Eastern tradition was more inner-oriented, there's just a different tone to it, and it, it takes you into that same inner place. You mentioned the Orthodox Church, and of course the three great patriarchs of the Orthodox Church, St. Basil, St. Gregory, and St. John Chrysostom. Why was he called the Golden Mouth? Well, he was very eloquent, and uh, it, it was like uh, gold would literally flow out of his mouth. Uh, he was charismatic, he had uh, the gift for speaking and, and the gift for writing, and it made him a very influential figure. Uh, he was considered to be a father of the church, he was made a doctor of the church, he was a bishop of Constantinople. Uh, he did suffer some in his life, in fact, um, uh, he did not enjoy an easy life at all. Uh, he was uh, arrested, he was uh, uh, taken to a remote area and, and imprisoned. Uh, he was subjected to a, to a lot of ordeals. Uh, for example, he was taken out of prison and uh, marched to a new location under horrible weather conditions. And a lot of these saints were already in sort of precarious health because of their mortifications and deprivations, and uh, uh, he suffered quite a bit um, during that. And, uh, One of my favorite uh, lines from uh, St. John Chrysostom, and he, uh, Orthodox uh, followers would, would note that uh, he wrote the liturgy, which is uh, celebrated at Easter, and uh, talking, of course, about uh, Christ's resurrection, and that the final two lines send chills up my spine each and every time, and that is, O Hades, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? And, you know, these words have uh, resonated in, in literature on down through the ages. Any other favorite saints, Rosemary? Well, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, did I have any experiences? And uh, I, I did have one experience that um, uh, involved St. Christopher. And uh, I carry a St. Christopher's medal uh, with me wherever I go as a result of, of that experience. Now, St. Christopher was, actually, he was taken out of, out of the canon because uh, uh, the historical documentation of his life was uncertain, and he was considered to be more of a legendary figure. But at any rate, uh, St. Christopher is still very popular today, and, and uh, people look to him as the patron saint of travelers, because the story goes that uh, he carried people across the river, and uh, one of the persons he carried was, was Jesus. But uh, before I began the saint book, um, I had a dream, uh, a, a very lucid visionary kind of dream uh, where it was um, St. Christopher figured into it and in the dream I, uh, I was on a pier in a lake and I saw something shiny uh, at the bottom of the lake and I dove in and picked it up and it, it was a St. Christopher's medal 
And um, I, uh, as I came back up to the surface, I found that I was no longer in a lake, but I was in the ocean, and I was in a riptide that was carrying me out into the open sea. And every symbolically, uh, and I was holding the, the St. Christopher medal, and symbolically it was like some force was taking me out into the unknown, away from land, which is everything that is familiar. So in a symbolic sense, it's like everything that was, uh, was familiar to me in life was receding from me, and I was going into the unknown, and all I had was this thing, Christopher's medal, to hold on to. And I knew I would be all right. Uh, well, within a year or two of that, um, I began the same book, but I also had some transformations in my life that changed my entire life. And, uh, you know, my relationships changed, some courses in my work changed, you know, the directions that I was going in. Uh, my marriage came apart, uh, and literally everything that was familiar to me in my life uh, changed, and I was in completely new territory. So the dream for me was very important because um, what the St. Christopher's Medal represented was uh, my spiritual center, and, uh, I, and I knew that fundamentally I would be all right if I, uh, I stayed on, on spiritual course. And so the St. Christopher became very symbolically important to me that way. Do you think that it's, it's, it's possible to commune with specific saints? I do. I do believe very strongly in, in the communion of saints, um, as, as well as the intervention of angels. They both function in, in the same way. I think that uh, this is a very real power that uh, people can connect to. And again, it's an intermediary power. The, the saint is the way to the divine. Uh, and for many people, the, the, uh, her, it's the feeling the closeness to the person. The divine is very remote. You know, God as a figure is, is remote uh, to many people. So uh, the saints, and especially because they were once people, they were once human beings, uh, provide uh, a conduit that people, to other people can relate to uh, for connecting with divine power. And that, that's really the conduit where... Uh, the power for healing and miracles and spiritual enlightenment flows. And each of us find our own channels that work for us. For some it's saints, for some it's angels, for others it's uh, Eastern you know, yoga traditions. Uh, we all find our, our paths to these conduits of divine power. And obviously the saints work for millions, probably billions of people around the world. Do you have a particular uh, a method of, of, I mean, do you personally uh, seek out uh, communion with the saints? I do, Richard, uh, and I, I have a very varied spiritual life, and I'm very eclectic because I, I don't really stick to any one religion or spiritual path. I, I think they all go to the same place anyway, uh, and uh, I... Uh, I have appreciation and, and respect for uh, for many different traditions, and um, I have incorporated the saints into uh, into my own uh, spiritual uh, beliefs. 
and that's one of the reasons why uh, I carry the, the St. Christopher medal. Uh, and I also uh, carry St. Benedict. And, and uh, uh, a lot of the things that I get into where I investigate uh, negative hauntings and people who have spiritual attachments and uh, problems from the dark side, uh, St. Benedict is uh, the intercessor for that. Uh, and called upon by people who do clearances and exorcisms and uh, things like that. So um, I don't have any specific prayers that I use. I don't use any formal prayers, uh, but I do pray uh, often to, uh, to various saints and to angels uh, and, and ask for their help. Uh, and I like candles. I, I get the candles that uh, are traditional, you know, the tall candles with pictures of the saints on them. And uh, depending upon what some of my projects are, my needs, or uh, even things that I pray for for other people, uh, I light the candle and, uh, and ask a particular saint for, for help. Well, in the work that you do, uh, Rosemary, uh, investigating uh, hauntings and, and so forth, please do keep uh, St. Benedict close at hand, and uh, I'll pray that he uh, remains close by as well. The Encyclopedia of Saints, which is uh, it's a fascinating uh, read, and it's a beautiful book. It's published by Checkmark, which is a, an imprint of facts on file. What's next, Rosemary, uh, in terms of uh, publishing? I have a number of uh, projects in the works, and in fact, I'm going to be revisiting the saints. Uh, I'm going to be expanding the encyclopedia over the next couple of years. Uh, looking forward very much to that because um, there are a lot of new saints, newly minted saints, uh, if, I, if I may, and uh, also just some, some details that I would like to add to, uh, to the lives that I've already covered. And uh, I uh, am continuing my work in spirit communications. I have a couple of books uh, and works on that. And I also continue my work in the paranormal. I have um, a book on Mothman going and uh, Mysterious Creatures and Cryptids, uh, Ups and Downs and Problems of the Ouija Board, and uh, more work on uh, interdimensional portals. And uh, our uh, contact with unknown entities. Well, it's going to be, as usual, a very busy uh, 2011, Rosemary. Listen, uh, congratulations on the Encyclopedia of, of Saints. Good luck with uh, the revised edition. I look forward to that. It would look uh, great in anyone's uh, library. And um, thanks for this. A very Merry Christmas to you. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, starting in January 2011, you're going to come back and uh, and uh, join us on a regular basis here on The Conspiracy Show. I'm looking forward to that again, Richard. I've always enjoyed working with you. I think you do a fabulous show, and I'm delighted to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. And same to you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds, 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers and brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. What um, Christmas special also would be complete without a discussion about, uh, well, perhaps one of the, uh, the most popular and puzzling mysteries of the Bible, and that is uh, the Star of Bethlehem. Its inclusion at the very beginning of the very first gospel, according to my next guest, raises so many awkward questions for Orthodox Christianity that one has to wonder how it ever made the, uh, the cut in the first place. So why would the author and editors of the Christian gospels choose Zoroastrian Magi and astrology to herald the coming of Jesus Christ? Did the Magi have some special significance then that we've since lost? After all, the New Testament narrative opens with them. So who were the Magi? And did their astrological beliefs really lead them to Jesus? Now for the first time in her book, The Star of the Magi. My guest has a solid background in the history of astrology, ancient religion, and she's going to uh, talk to us about the star. I think you'll find the result is a breathtaking, uh, a, bre- a breathtaking blend of history, religious studies, astronomy, and astrology that tells the whole story as it's never been told before. And a, a great pleasure uh, to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Courtney Roberts, author of Star of the Magi. Hello, Courtney. Hello, Richard. It's good to have you back. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Well, uh, I guess before we talk about this um, astrological or astronomical event, in order to do that, um, we sort of have to give it some uh, time frame, right? I mean, you can't, you have to determine the approximate date of Jesus' birth in in order to then look back uh, and determine what it was, because just about Every year, there is some sort of uh, uh, a sky phenomena. Uh, if you know what I'm saying, you can't. You 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 have to first establish a time frame for Jesus' birth. Is that correct? A fair assessment? Well, that is the astronomical approach, and I think that's been one of the most um, popular approaches to the the mystery of the star over the last. 100 years or so. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, several times in any year, there's something amazing going on in the sky that, that people notice. You know, there's, there's nothing unusual about unusual things happening. 
in, in the heavens. Uh, but yeah, if you've outlined the astronomical approach, and I will say that that has produced um, any number of conflicting theories, indeed a, a new theory almost every, every year at Christmas. Uh, so it, it may not be the most effective methodology, but that is, uh, again, the astronomical approach. Well, then uh, explain uh, your approach, uh, because you're coming at it from uh, uh, an ast- a, a cultural ast- astrology perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you uh, uh, try and, you know, wrap your head around this and, and, and conduct your research? Well, um, that, that, that's a, a good question, because I think for a lot of people, the starting point, uh, the question that they raise is, you know, what, what was the star of Bethlehem? What was it? Um, and... Again, that's a question that has produced uh, almost as many answers as there are researchers that have taken it on. Um, I'm not sure that's the best question to ask. Uh, I've asked questions, uh, you know, as, as you raised in your introduction about, you know, why on earth would the author of the Gospel of Matthew think that putting Zoroastrian magi with astrology would, would be convincing? Uh, to his target audience, it seems awfully, uh, you know, pluralistic and and unorthodox. So, so what would the, these these magi have meant to the people that Ma- that the author of Matthew was writing to um, in the first century, and who who were largely uh, Judeans? Um, most of his gospel is targeted to an obviously Judean audience and, you know, addresses obviously Judean concerns, in which case, you know, why Zoroastrian Magi? What did, what did they, they mean to his target audience? And I think when we start uh, asking questions like that and raising questions like that, we come up with uh, a real big picture kind of answer, because... Um, to, to understand ancient astrology, you, you, you first have to realize that there were traditions, there were large bodies of traditions that you know people in the field were uh, aware of, and that's that's another flaw with that astronomical approach: the idea that you can just find something that happened in the sky and assume that for people in the first century this meant that a Messiah was going to be born in Jerusalem. You're, you're just leaving an awful lot out there. You know, and I think it's better to start with, you know, what were the actual astrological and astronomical traditions of the people involved, of the Persian Magi, uh, of the Judeans in Matthew's time. And again, that just brings up much better answers and, uh, and a much more complete picture. And I, and I do have to raise at least this question at the outset, you know, um, was there a, quote, star of Bethlehem at all? Um, I think uh, we would be in error if we were reading the story in Matthew as history in the modern sense. Um, it is a very late addition to the Gospel, and most scholars would say that it probably didn't even show up in the introduction to the Gospel until maybe as late as 80 or 90 A.D. It is not a, a first-hand eyewitness account, not by any means. And I think when we start interpreting it literally and assuming that this actually happened the way that he described it, I, I think we get into some problems. 
Whereas, again, if we look at it in the sense of, you know, how would this be meaningful to his audience? And what's the bigger picture that he's trying to convey? Again, we get, we get much better answers that way. So I'm, I'm not even entirely convinced that there was some star that people saw, you know, before or at the time of the birth of Christ that really told them that this amazing thing was happening. I mean, may, maybe it did happen. I don't mean to be cynical. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm going to take Matthew's story with a really big grain of salt, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Courtney Roberts is the author of The Star of the Magi, the, hit, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Uh, when we come back, uh, uh, Courtney, I'll get you to explain how it is that you've uh, determined or, or how it's been determined that the, uh, we always hear about the three wise men, of course. Nowhere in the uh, uh, gospel does it uh, identify three. It just says, uh, uh, I don't even know if it says wise men, but uh, uh, how you have I, uh, identified them as uh, uh, essentially Persian uh, astrologers, uh, followers of uh, Zoroastrianism. And uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, place to start when we come back. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Courtney Roberts is with us, the author of The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. We're talking about the Star of Bethlehem. What was it exactly? Now, the uh, the Magi, the uh, uh, how did you determine, or has it been determined, if uh, or, or they, they were in fact uh, Zoroastrians? Uh, now, this is one of the oldest religions, I guess, next to Hinduism. This is one of the oldest religions in the world. Absolutely, and and that's a that's a really good question. And the answer is is quite simple. Uh, the the author of that part of the Gospel of Matthew, um, whoever it was, and, and we don't know, um, states that there came uh, magi, and in the. Uh, the, the earliest editions we have of this are in Greek, so I don't think it was originally written in Greek. I think it was originally written in Aramaic, but in the original Greek editions, he uses the word magi, which is the plural of uh, magus or magus. And he says they came from the east. Now, due east of Jerusalem uh, lay the Parthian Persian Empire. And, of course, um, the hereditary priestly caste of the Persian Empire and the Persian Zoroastrian religion were the Magi. And so they were uh, due east from Jerusalem. There were definitely Magi there. We have, you know, documents from the first century Parthian Empire that shows that the Magi um, were very much uh, a part of the the empire and of the governing of the empire. And they had... um, long-standing cultural, religious, and political ties with the Judeans, especially when it came to uh, fighting Roman occupation and specifically restoring uh, a Judean king of a Judean dynasty uh, back on the throne in Jerusalem. In fact, only 35 years before the birth of Christ, the the Parthians had invaded and driven uh, King Herod off the throne and restored a Jewish king. And the Romans fought back and put Herod back on there. But there's, there's a long history there. Also, the Magi, the Persian Magi, uh, were, were famous throughout the ancient world as uh, cracking astrologers. And uh, the word Magi is almost synonymous 
with um, astrologer. They're also very good at dream interpretation, but the kind of astrology that they practiced is, is really relevant to this whole story. When, when we use the word astrology nowadays, we think of, uh, you know, star sign columns in the newspaper or on the internet or, or whatnot. Um, the, the Persians had a, a different kind of religious astrology. They were very big picture kinds of people. So they were looking at using cycles of planetary motion to determine uh, big historical events, specifically the rise and fall of um, kingdoms, dynasties, and empires, um, the coming of great prophets and new religious revelations, a kind of messianism, and ultimately, of course, for the Persians, the thing they were most looking out for was the, um, the upcoming great battle between good and evil at the end of the world, which for them, all of creation was always leading up to that um, apocalypse where good was going to was destined to win forever. So uh, I, I think it's really kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't take a, a big leap to uh, realize that, you know, Matthew, the author of Matthew, is making very direct reference to um, the Persian astrologers who lived due east of Jerusalem who had a vested interest uh, in the politics of Jerusalem. And, and in fact, that's the, the question that he puts in the mouth of the Magi as they arrive in Jerusalem is, where is he who was born king of the Jews, and that would be a question dear to the hearts of any Persian magi. So, so uh, you know, that's my basis for, for saying that uh, they're Zoroastrian magi. That's exactly what Matthew calls them. Now, uh, would it not also be a fulfillment uh, that that it would be the um, the magi uh, come to to follow the star, star? Would it not be a fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, uh, a prophecy? Because a, a Daniel while in B- Babylon, my um, my understanding was that he, while in Babylon, was the chief of the Magi, was he not? And it and and um, there's something uh, where he has a vision where he talks about um, you know that the, the the Messiah will be announced in due time by a star, and it's uh, he left it to sort of the secret sect of the Magi for its uh, uh, eventual fulfillment. So. I mean, would would it, that not make sense from a biblical standpoint? Then that that uh, that it would be the Magi. Well, um, you're you're getting into biblical tradition rather than history and archaeology, and I think it's important to understand the difference between the two. Um, the Book of Daniel, which purports to be written. Um, at the time of uh, when the Persians conquered Babylon, 538 B.C., the time of the Judean captivity in Babylon, is uh, is a much, much later document, uh, maybe as late as uh, 2nd century B.C., and we really don't know who the author was. Um, so a lot of this tradition that, uh, you know, Daniel was the head of the Magi in Babylon, you know, it, it's not history. It's, it's not archaeology. It's 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 tradition, and, and there's probably very little basis in, in fact. Um, one thing you do find is um, certainly after the birth of Christ, the more orthodox um, practice, practitioners of Judaism and the more orthodox Christians really try to create some kind of biblical lineage for the Magi, because they, for Matthew's Magi, because they try to, you know, trace everything back to the Bible to keep this kind of monolinear historical narrative going that's, that's all leading up to them. But again, we're, we're talking tradition. We're not, we're not talking about 
uh, history. The history is um, it's pretty plain, and I don't think that we really need to try to create some kind of biblical or Judean lineage for the Magi. The Persian Empire was huge in the ancient world. It was extremely powerful, uh, and Judea was a, a colony of the Persians for several centuries. Oh. Uh, Judea was a very tiny, tiny little country. It was podunk in comparison. So I don't think the Persians were looking to the Judeans for lineage. It was more like the other way around. When did we, we start to uh, 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 give the, the Magi uh, names? I mean, we've, we've come to know them as Balthazar, king of uh, Arabia, and uh, Melchior, king of Persia, and Gaspar, king of India. When did that happen? Yeah, that's all later Christian tradition. That's all going on in the, you know, 4th century, 5th century, and and on out. And there's just massive bodies of tradition uh, about the Magi, uh, all stemming back to this, you know, very small reference um, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, oh. Again, it's it's not history. It's it's lore. All right, we'll, uh, we'll come back and um, uh, delve further into the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem with Courtney Roberts, author of the Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Phone lines are open as well for comments and questions. What do you think the Star of Bethlehem was? Some sort of galactic alignment? Was it a supernova? A comet? Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If we assume that uh, the most likely time frame for the birth of Jesus was in the years before A.D. 1, uh, and we also assume that the Star of Bethlehem could be observed by sky watchers elsewhere in the world, not just by the Magi who followed the star uh, to Jesus' birthplace, uh, what was it then, we have to ask ourselves? What would be the, the prime suspects in this mystery? Comets, brightening stars known as uh, nova, exploding stars known as supernova? The, uh, the Chinese did a particularly good job of cataloging uh, astronomical phenomena, and they recorded no such phenomena during the years in question. So what was it? What was the star of Bethlehem? Was it, in fact, even a star? Courtney Roberts is uh, my guest, and she is the author of the Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Okay, so Courtney, we've established the uh, the, uh, the the Magi, these uh, uh, great astrologers. What do you think then? Let's as, assuming that, uh, that they were following something, and this uh, account in 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 Matthew is uh, is true. What what are the logical uh, conclusions or the best suspects for what they were in fact uh, following? Okay, well, we do know um, some very interesting things about the kind of astrology that the Magi practiced. And, and I, I noticed that I'm the only person that, that, that asks that question. What kind of astrology did the Magi practice? I, I just think that's a really good question. And again, the astronomical approach, they, they look at the sky and they pick out something. They say, oh, this must have been meaningful, as if the Magi were a bunch of you know, idiots who, who just wandered around seeing things in the sky and deciding a Messiah was coming. And, and these guys were a lot more sophisticated than that. And I think, you know, we need to start by giving them a little credit and understanding that they operated within a tradition that had been going on for hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of 
years and, you know, start asking about them as, as real people with a real belief system. So we, we do know some really interesting things about the kind of astrology that they practice because it was preserved in uh, later Persian astrology, which was picked up by um, the Islamic Empire uh, under the Abbasid Caliphs in the 8th and 9th century um, AD when they, they built Baghdad. So we have texts that uh, date back to, again, 8th century AD and going back into even earlier Persian empires, 3rd and 4th century AD, Sasanian texts that tell us you know, quite a bit about uh, how the Persian Magi did astrology. Now remember, first and foremost, they're big picture people. They're not doing birth horoscopes necessarily. I'm not saying that they didn't do them. That was a little bit more of a Greek thing. But um, they had a, a larger interest in great cycles of history. Remember, as Zoroastrians, they're, um, they're monotheists, but they're very dualistic monotheists. So they believe that all of time and history this very limited segment of finite time that we occupy, it was, it was all created to house this ongoing battle between good and evil, between the good god, Ahura Mazda, and the evil god, Angramanyu, and it's all leading up to this ultimate battle between good and evil at the end of time, at the end of history, where good is destined to win forever and usher in a new millennium of peace where all the good people will live in peace forever. And, of course, for the... The not-so-good people, the ending isn't, isn't quite as happy. Well, that all sounds rather familiar, uh, Courtney. Oh, that sounds should. like the Christian Bible. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't usually give the Persians credit for these ideas. We think these ideas are Judean or Christian. And, uh, you know, I have to say, historically, that is very incorrect. But in the West, we do have this monolinear historical narrative of the history of religion that says, well, the Jews discovered God, and then Jesus came, and, and it just creates this line of religious authority that leads right to the Christian church and right, right to us. But this is tradition. It is not history. <laughs> Actually, to the history, read the text, check the archaeology. These are plainly Persian Zoroastrian ideas and, uh, you know, reveal the extent of the cultural domination that the Persians influenced uh, over the Judeans and not vice versa. Okay, you know, here again at the receiving end of the Western Judeo-Christian cultural tradition, we think it all has to go back to the Jews. But that is a huge cultural bias in the ancient world. Again, Persia was really big, really important. The Judeans were, were very small and always on the brink of extinction. Okay, so we, we have to bear that in mind. Now, going back to the astrology of the Magi, um, what we do know is that, you know, and in this idea that they're waiting for this, this ultimate battle, as part of their um, religious chronology, they believe that, that the good God, uh, in order to hasten this ultimate battle, would at the astrologically appropriate times in history send uh, these world saviors, these future deliverers, who would be like great prophets and they would spread the good religion far and wide into to new territories and help to bring about uh, the, uh, the triumph of, of good over evil. So they had this, this form of messianism that was built in to the... Um, 
astrology. They, of course, were also very interested in the rise and fall of new kingdoms, new dynasties, new empires, because that was tied into the good and evil thing, too. There were, there were certain kingdoms, like the Persian Empire, that they thought were kingdoms of God and, you know, God-given kings. And then there were other kingdoms, like the Greeks and the Romans, that they were convinced were completely and wholly evil and, and serve the evil God. And that was the situation that you had in, uh, in Jerusalem, where they were occupied by the Romans, and the Romans had put uh, a king on the throne, Herod, and proclaimed him king of the Jews. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was, he was Edomian. He was a Roman puppet. And again, as soon as they did that, the Persians had intervened and driven him off the throne to help the Judeans and put a, a Judean king. Uh, on the throne didn't last, uh, but you know they were always ready to to try it again. So this is the kind of um, astrological concerns that the major had. Now, t- in this astrology, there are two methods that we can discern that they relied on, uh, at least uh, in the main. Uh, first off was the idea of millenniums. Um, the Persians were really big into um, apportioning history into these discrete 1,000-year periods. And we actually have references, Greek references, going back to the 3rd and 4th century B.C. to talk about how the Magi and the Persians um, divided time into millenniums, and the millenniums were, were astrological. They were ruled over by a planet or a sign. And, that the, again, these millenniums housed this ongoing battle between um, the good God and the evil God. Now, again, this is an idea that is still very much with us, and we think it has some kind of Judean or Christian um, origin, but it's very much a a Persian innovation. So they used millenniums, and of course they argued about the millenniums. It wasn't rocket science. They didn't, you know, always agree on exactly when the millennium started or or which astrological millennium it was. So they argued about this a lot. The second technique that they used, and they were very famous um, for this, was the cycle of Jupiter and Saturn conjunctions. And Persians had been keen on this cycle going back to maybe the year 522 BC. Now, a lot of people don't recognize this, but Jupiter and Saturn meet up in the sky or conjunct um, in the same degree and the same sign of the zodiac regularly every 20 years, like clockwork, they meet up. And the beauty of it is that um, as they do this every 20 years, uh, each subsequent conjunction is um, almost exactly 120 degrees longitude behind the previous one, so that over time they trace out this beautiful pattern of interlacing triangles around the zodiac. And uh, I've got a diagram of it in my book. You really have to see it to believe it. It's, it's really compelling, really beautiful. And this was you know, very meaningful in the ancient world. Jupiter and Saturn were, were the limits, the, the farthest planets that that they knew of, and to them, these were the the great timekeepers that apportioned history and gave meaning to historical time. So uh, they had a lot of traditions 
um, about this cycle. And obviously there's a, there's a conjunction every 20 years, and, and some conjunctions were more um, significant than others. So um, is it then possible, if I'm following the logic here, Courtney, uh, that, that uh, Saturn and Jupiter might have, have passed so quickly or so closely at, at some point that without binoculars they would have looked like a single star? That would have to be a really, really tight conjunction. And, and again, um, I, I just am not willing to assume, based upon Matthew's description, that it's a single star that he's talking about. I mean, does it need to be? You know? Um, but that would have to be a pretty tight conjunction. Sure, it could happen. It could happen. But, um, you know, there's differences in declination and there's parallax. And, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of things that can mess that up very easily. So um, it does happen, but, but rarely, rarely. So the, the Zoroastrians were looking for a, a messiah. Uh, and they're, according to their uh, uh, belief system, there were to be a number of them scattered throughout history coming at, uh, uh, you know, important um, epochs. Right. Then, is, I mean, it, it, that does not discount the fact, though, that they, they, they were looking for one and found one in Bethlehem. Or, or so the author of Matthew wants you to believe. And this is my point. This story was not written at the time. It was inserted after the fall of, of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, maybe 80, maybe 90 AD, and I totally agree with you. He is absolutely trying to create the impression in the reader's mind that the Persians, the Persian Magi from the neighboring next door Parthian Empire, uh, predicted the birth of Jesus with their astrology and actually came looking for him. He is absolutely trying to create that image in the minds of his readers. Did it actually happen? You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't know if it did or not, and I, I'm not going to assume, but it would be very meaningful to his readers to believe that it did. It would give great credibility to the Christian Church's claims of Jesus as this great prophet that was bringing a new revelation, and, and specifically to their claims that he was the heaven-sent, God-chosen, king of Judea, and that the Judeans, in rejecting him and crucifying him, had brought upon themselves the destruction of Jerusalem, which, which is something that we forget about, I think, very quickly here 2,000 years later, that, you know, uh, within a generation after the birth of Christ, the Judeans were destroyed by the Romans. They, they were revolting, and the Romans got tired of it, and they burned Jerusalem to the ground. They burned the temple to the ground, and the Jews were a people without a home until after World War II. Did the Zoroastrians uh, mention uh, Jesus or um, a, a, a figure like Jesus anywhere in their, in their, their writings? Do you know? Well, uh, they have... Uh, vast and extensive traditions about the coming future deliverers. Um, the Sao Shiant is, is the word that they use. On, um, over the thousands of years of development of the Persian religion, um, you know, there's a lot of different twists and turns in these traditions, but 
uh, in many of the accounts, they would be actually like spiritual sons of the prophet Zoroaster, and they would be miraculously conceived by a virgin. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that, that really fits into the, the image that Christians try to create um, for the parentage of Jesus, that he had no earthly father, he had a spiritual father, he was born of a virgin. This completely fits in with um, the Persian traditions. Another uh, sequence of events that plays out in, the, in, in Matthew, where, where the, uh, these three astrologers, or how many ever there were, have we established how many there, 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 there may have been? He only uses uh, the plural. Okay. Magi, he never says how many there were. The, the idea that there are three probably comes from the gifts, because he does say that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, you know, people kind of assumed, oh, well, one had the gold, and one had the frankincense, and one had the myrrh. There were three. And, and you know, so it goes. That's tradition. That's how tradition goes. But he he just he doesn't say he just uses the plural. But, but we were led to believe that the the astrologers go to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, "Where is he that is born King of the Jews?" For we you know we have seen his star in the east and we're, we've come to worship him. Uh, I mean, how likely a scenario is that? I mean, would uh, these astrologers uh, or these magi uh, have been able to cross into uh, uh, Judea uh, and uh, unnoticed uh, and? Uh, um, go, you know, directly to Herod, and, and uh, or would it have been a rather hostile welcoming committee? I, yeah, I, I think it's highly unlikely, and, um, you know, I can't speak with any great authority to that, but remember, um, only 30 years before this, um, the Parthians, um, goaded on by their magi, had invaded and driven Herod off the throne, and he'd had to fight his way back, so he had, uh, you know, a lot of reasons to fear them, and, and certainly the idea of them showing up in Jerusalem saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews, uh, and then going to Herod's court with this news, I, I'm sorry, that's kind of far-fetched. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, Herod was notoriously uh, murderous. And uh, again, if we can kind of take that, that bigger picture perspective rather than just uh, assuming that, that this is history, we do know uh, from the author Josephus, that in in the years uh, 6 BC, 5 BC, Herod went on kind of a murderous rampage where he killed off several of his own sons, accusing them of plots to overthrow him. Now, there was a massive triple Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 6 and 7 BC. Maybe we can uh, chat about that when we come back. Courtney Roberts, my guest, as we continue to delve into the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. My name is Richard Serrett. personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Courtney Roberts is uh, my guest. And we're discussing the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. Her book, Star, The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. And Courtney's website is www.courtneyrobertshome.com. C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-H-O-M-E. CourtneyRobertsHome.com. I've linked up to her site on my site. 
at uh, richardserrett.com. Just click on uh, her name that appears on the uh, the homepage, and that'll take you directly there. And uh, her books are available uh, through PayPal there. Uh, so, uh, the Star of Bethlehem. If we start to try and you know retrace some of the conjunctions, and uh, I guess we can do this now with modern day computer simulations, uh, Courtney. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very easy. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, there was a rather uh, uh, an interesting conjunction. Did you say 6 B.C.? Yeah, 6 and 7 B.C. Now, um, re- remember, the Magi did have their traditions, and some conjunctions were more important than others. Um, the conjunctions, because they moved in these triangles, these interlacing triangles around the zodiac, they tended to stay in signs of the same element, fire, earth, air, and water, for about 220, 250 years. Uh, and then they would shift into a different element. So that period of a shift when they were changing from, say, fire signs to water signs, was considered significant. Something would happen. So that's about every 250 years. Now, they also believed, and, and this is one of the amazing things about their astrology, remember, they're, they're big into the millenniums. Well, they believed by their math that uh, the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions took almost exactly a 1,000 years to make an entire circuit of the zodiac in order to, uh, you know, to trace out these interlacing triangles all around the zodiac, it would, it would take almost, by their math, a thousand years for the, the conjunctions to go, say, from the beginning of the zodiac, zero degrees Aries, all the way, move all the way around the zodiac, back to zero degrees Aries. They thought that was about a thousand years. Their math was a little off, okay? We now know it's closer to eight to nine hundred years, but that's what they believed at the time. So they, they were really keen on using these conjunctions to apportion their millenniums, you know, when the millennium began, etc. So when they saw the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions moving towards the beginning of the zodiac again, for many of them, that would be perhaps a signal of a new millennium of a really critical time. And that's exactly what was happening um, around the time of the birth of Jesus. But now going back to the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction in 6 and 7 B.C., that one occurred in the sign Pisces, about halfway through the sign Pisces, what was significant about that one, it was, it was a triple conjunction. In other words, and this, this happens not infrequently with the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions, whereby, you know, Jupiter moves faster than Saturn, right? I, I think most of us realize that. So if you're watching them in the sky you, every night, you watch Jupiter catch up to Saturn and you have a conjunction. And then, of course, Jupiter's faster, so it passes Saturn. But then let's say they both turn retrograde, you know, because of the Earth's movement around the sun. From our point of view, it looks like planet slow down, stop, turn around, and start moving backwards. And we call that retrograde motion. Of course, they're not really moving backwards. You know, it's, it's just a, a reflection of our position relative to them. But that's what you see. So if you're watching these conjunctions, Jupiter catches up with Saturn, it passes Saturn, and then they turn retrograde, and they start moving backwards. Well, Jupiter is still moving faster than Saturn, so it's going to catch up and make a retrograde conjunction and pass Saturn again. Then they're going to stop at a certain point, turn around and go direct again, at which point Jupiter is going to catch up with Saturn for conjunction number three. And that's what was going on at 6 and 7 B.C. with that conjunction in in the middle of, of of Pisces. It was a, a triple conjunction. And at one point, um, Mars, uh, the planet Mars, joined up with them as, as well, which was very significant in Persian astrology. Because now you had the three outermost, most powerful planets um, all joined together. Jupiter, and this, 
Jupiter is known as the kingly planet, which is rather interesting as well. Well, it's, it's known as a lot of things. It's known as a lot of things. It's, it's a very positive planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, this year, 6-7 BC, that's when we see Herod going on the slaughtering rampage and killing off several of his sons, who he claimed were trying to overthrow him. Now, if you understand the, the temper of the times, and there's this big triple conjunction going on, everybody's going to be talking revolution. Everybody's going to be saying, oh, you know, what does it mean, and how does it tie in with the Persian prophecies, and it does it mean that this Messiah is coming, does it mean that the king's going to die? You know, there's just going to be a lot of um, talk and, and hysteria in general, and I think that's what we see happening in, uh, in Herod's court. So this was almost like the Zoroastrians 2012. Well, um, you know, I can think of a, it's funny that you mentioned that, I can think of a better candidate, because um, as I mentioned, this, Pis, this conjunction was in the middle of Pisces, but it was, um, let me get this right, 54 AD, uh, if, if they were really watching the skies, and of course they were, they would have realized even in 6 or 7 BC that the conjunctions are actually finishing up their cycle through the zodiac, and they're about to move to zero degrees Aries, the beginning of the zodiac, which for many of them would mean the beginning of a whole new cycle, the beginning of a new millennium. And that conjunction actually occurred um, 60 years later in 54 BC, and that's when the conjunction was right at zero degrees Aries, and it on the first day of spring when the sun was there, it was a very, very significant chart, and I think that one would have been uh, infinitely more significant to the Persians than the one that occurred in 6 and 7 BC. It's spectacular as, as that one was. The, the one in 54 would have been more rightly seen as a a new millennium, a new era, and that's the conjunction that was in place for the destruction of Jerusalem in 69 AD. And it's only after that conjunction and the destruction of Jerusalem that this story appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so again, I think we have to, to factor that all in. Yeah, people were very excited about this stuff, and they were talking about it, but um, they were arguing about it most of the time, and they had a lot of different opinions. Were there some Persian astrologers, some Magi, that were actually such good astrologers that they figured all of this out beforehand and came looking for Jesus? I, I'm just not so sure, and part of my hesitation comes from spending a good part of my life in the astrological community. Astrologers are often you know, not as good as they, they claim to be, and they're often much better at spotting things in, in hindsight than, than in foresight. All right, Courtney, uh, stay put. A few more questions remain on the other side. The mystery of the Star of Bethlehem here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, just a few moments uh, remain with uh, Courtney Roberts, uh, a different kind of astrologer, uh, to be sure. She looks at the big picture and the universe of meaning. And uh, her book is The Star of the Magi, The Mystery That Heralded the Coming of Christ. Uh, you, you, you mentioned that there's a lot of astrological ideas behind uh, this division of time, B.C. and A.D. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's a, a division that uh, came out of the 6th and 7th centuries when the Church of Rome assigned uh, a Scythian monk, Denis Exegius, to uh, actually try to you know, calculate 
the exact birth of Christ, because I guess they they lost track by that time. But you notice how, um, you know, we divide time right there. There's before Christ, and then there's, you know, year of the Lord after after Christ. And I, I think there was a, a real prevalent idea in the first century A.D. Uh, among not just the early Christians, but, but many other cults of the time, that they were very much living at the end of the world and at the beginning of a whole new era. Now, there was a lot of astrological speculation behind that, and one of the most prevalent reasons was because the the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions were uh, finishing up their old cycle in the Zodiac and beginning this this whole new cycle uh, in the Sinai. So there certainly would have been um, a lot of speculation about that and a lot of, you know, exciting ideas about uh, a new savior or a new messiah. But I I think you see a lot of this uh, thinking in um, the Mithraean cults. Uh, There was a cult of Corrid Virgin in Egypt that had some very similar ideas. You certainly see it uh, in the... um, the cult of the emperor uh, in Rome, because this also coincides with the early days of the Roman Empire under Augustus, who used um, astrology uh, more so than than any uh, Roman ruler before or after him to establish uh, that that he was, you know, the the ruler of the world, and this was a whole new age um, for Rome. So, so they were uh, m- many different. Uh, peoples in many different belief systems were appropriating um, this kind of astrological reasoning to declaring this a, a very unique time. And again, the the end of the old world and the beginning of the new one. And, and, and for many reasons, this is why I like to refer to Christianity as the original New Age uh, religion. They really believed that they were living in this, this whole new age. The the Zoroastrian priests uh, nowadays uh, do they are are they still adept uh, astrologers? No, uh, and it's, that's a great question because, you know, they, they are still around today. We have a community of them here in New York. Um, they got uh, kind of driven out of Iran, of, of course, after the Muslims took over. And in the 9th and 10th centuries, there was a great exodus of them from uh, Iran into India and there's a big colony in Bombay. Bombay is now the home of the largest Zoroastrian community. Uh, so it, in the process, they, they've gotten away from the astrology. I, I think the Islamic Empire took up the astrology more so uh, than the later Zoroastrian. So if you were to go to a Zoroastrian meeting today, which, which I've, I've had the, the honor and the privilege to do, um, the priests are, are very charming men, and they're very concerned with leading their flock, but for the most part, they don't know that much about astrology. They see it as a kind of historical artifact. Are they still uh, awaiting a, um, uh, a messiah? Uh, well, yes, they're still very much operating within that whole belief system, but I would add, um, perhaps uh, in contrast to the way the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims interpret the whole apocalypse thing, because remember the Muslims are every bit as apocalyptic as Christians, if not more, um, they, they have an interesting way of looking at it in that, you know, they're very much on the side of good trying to defeat evil, and they see that, um, 
it's kind of our responsibility to do as much good uh, here and now and every moment to, to bring it about, to good thoughts, good words, uh, good actions, and, and that's how the victory in the battle comes. So it's kind of as soon as humanity really gets its act together and starts living in a good way that, that all of this will happen naturally and, and good will triumph. So. Uh, they're a little bit more along those lines. I think the other monotheisms could learn something significant from that. All right, Courtney, what uh, what, what are you working on now these days? What's next? Uh, I'm doing a lot of sports, doing a lot of football and a lot of basketball. I've, I'm finishing up a, a book for Llewellyn right now on the astrological ascendant, the, the rising sign. And I'm living on the bay on Long Island and enjoying my long walks by the ocean. Good for you. Well, thank you for this, uh, Courtney. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Courtney Roberts and the star of The Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Well, that's it for me. And I will be back next week, the first show of 2011, Sunday, January 2nd, The Conspiracy Show will be with you once again. I have a riveting program for you. I'll be speaking with our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, about perhaps the greatest athlete the world has ever known, certainly the greatest golfer the world has ever known, Tiger Woods. Why you say, are we talking about Tiger Woods on The Conspiracy Show? Well, you'll just have to wait. There is a connection, I guarantee. We'll also talk about peak oil with author-researcher Chip Haynes. That's coming up on the next Conspiracy Show, the 1st of 2011, Sunday, January the 2nd. Hope you'll be with me then. My uh, my sincere wishes for a uh, a truly blessed Christmas season to all of you and a happy, prosperous, joyous 2011 I look forward to spending 2011 with all of you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Thanks, Dan Ellison, for a great year. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.